if you're not a white man, <laughs> this system was not designed for you. But it's in no bigger way for a young person than an education. As a woman of color, I feel like I am facing two different pandemics right now. One being the coronavirus and the second being racism. It's an achievement to make it through, not just in the conventional way, but like, wow, you've completed this degree in a space where you were visibly different and visibly other and in a place where people might also question how you got there and why you're there. Graduating from college for a lot of minority students, that's power. You are filling these young minds who are then going to go out into the world and hold on to these views and believe that they've been educated in truth by this trustworthy, prestigious institution. We don't learn about any black inventions. We don't learn about any black contributions. So we just assume that only thing black people have done in this world is be slaves and that's it. America is a melting pot. So why is our education so tailored to the history of the Caucasian and the white experience? If there ever comes a time of injustice or a question of oppression, the first thing that you need to think is there are two sides of every story. I wish that I knew yours. Welcome back to Commencement, the podcast dedicated to discussing the unspoken reality of life after graduation. And I'm your host, Becca, a recent graduate of the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. As the momentum behind the Black Lives Matter movement has risen internationally this summer, I started reflecting about my own experience in higher education as a privileged white student and how little I thought about and engaged in dialogue about race with my peers during university. So I reached out to seven black recent graduates from the U.S. and the U.K., I asked them what their experience as a black student at a predominantly white institution was like and how higher education institutions may be complicit in systemic racism. As the world grapples with two devastating viruses, COVID-19 and systemic racism, I am committed to immersing myself in learning as much as possible and sharing that learning with you. And that starts with reflecting and understanding how systemic racism and white supremacy are present in my own communities and institutions I've been a part of. The learning curve is steep. As such, please remember that this discussion about race and the terminology surrounding systemic racism is fluid and may have even evolved since the time this episode was recorded. On this episode, you'll hear from these recent graduates about their experiences what they want non-black students to be more mindful of, comments and microaggressions we need to rectify, and actions they recommend we take to support the Black Lives Matter movement. Right now, let's begin by listening to their stories and wisdom. I did my undergrad at Suffolk University in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm from Ghana and New Jersey. I graduated from the Savannah College of Art and Design, which is in Savannah, Georgia. I studied at the University of St. Andrews, and um, I just finished a year abroad at the University of Pennsylvania. Born in Nigeria, and then I grew up there. I've lived in Scotland ever since. Uh, originally from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I attended the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. I am about to graduate from the University of St. Andrews. I'm from Manchester. I am from Boston, Massachusetts, and I went to Northeast University, which is also in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm from London, and I have just finished studying at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. 
First and foremost, I wondered how these black youth were really feeling about the growth and support for the Black Lives Matter movement in the wake of George Floyd's murder and other instances of racially targeted police brutality. I find it absolutely incredible that we need a movement to tell people that black lives do matter. I feel like it's something that is a given, it should be accepted. But unfortunately the way the world is it's not, so we need this movement to remind people that yes, black lives do matter. But I think the meaning of that movement gets lost sometimes, either intentionally or through ignorance. It's not a movement that's saying only black lives matter, but it's just saying that we know that other lives do matter, but the way the world treats black lives, it seems like it does not matter to certain people. It is very overwhelming especially as a black person when you are introduced to these things from a very young age it's not something that we get to just learn later on in an abstract way it's something we are confronted with whether we like it or not with quarantine and with so many people not just in america but the world isolated and for the most part just being constantly fed news and information the events of the last few weeks were just in everyone's minds 24 7. If we weren't in a pandemic, we probably wouldn't see as much outcry or outrage as we are now. I've personally protested once or twice in Philadelphia. It was also very uplifting to see people from all different kinds of backgrounds, some of which who've never protested before or just weren't aware of the issues being in the forefront. Why is this something that now everyone seems to be getting? And given that it seems like it's only like this new wave, do people actually understand the systemic damage of racism? And is this going to be like an impactful change? I realize now more than ever that it's so important that we have voices from people of color in the public realm. And I want to be able to contribute to that. So I feel more empowered. In a sense, I do feel empowered, but I also feel extremely saddened that this movement is needed, especially in 2020. Um, I feel like we should be in a better place in terms of someone's civil rights pertaining to race. So many years after we allegedly got rights in the past. So I'm definitely just tired, I'm exhausted, I'm saddened, I'm hurt. So on top of all that, you have to feel very grateful that you're still alive at this point. I mean, we're facing two different pandemics and I'm still here to share my story. I'm here on this podcast. So in a sense, I'm very grateful that I, I still have my voice. I've had so many different waves of understanding my own identity and my own role within Black Lives Matter in the wake of recent events. Firstly, was very numb, I didn't really know how to respond, and then that numbness turned into anger, and I was hypersensitive to anything that brought up the issue of race. I found it even hard to laugh at like things that I would find funny, I just was like, how can I still be happy when so much is going on? And I'm actually at the moment, I'm back in Scotland, it's been a very interesting scenario trying to pr process everything that's been going on in a very like white space with people who want to understand and are supporting me but people who there's some things that they just don't get sad but hopeful i see a certain uh, mindset that has rooted itself in our society and that's plagued a decent amount of our lives an illusion of superiority which leads to minorities being oppressed and it also leads to that being hidden from certain people. I think that there are people out there that are very aware of the injustices that are happening. There are others out there that are aware but fail to see their role in what the system has become. And then there are people out there that genuinely are blind to what's happening. Regardless of what category you fall in, you have been failed by your society. 
the practice of introspection of analyzing your own privilege it's a very useful tool it's very necessary but i think that that value has been lost in our society and the, the ones that have failed to see how they benefit from the struggle of the oppression of others it is a waste of mental capacity without exercising the value and thought of introspection and of gaining perspective, you have essentially lost one of the many things that makes you human. Therefore, you've lost your humanity. However, as a black man in America, I think it would be very counterproductive to lose hope in what's happening. Once you lose hope, you lose belief in the ability of people to change and be better than who they were yesterday. At the same time, there are police officers out there, teachers out there that make it hard to put faith in them, that make it hard to have hope. But once you break someone's hope, you break a decent part of their motivation. And what we need is motivation and thought and drive in order to fight these very systemic issues that we see today. Next, I asked these graduates about particular instances of racism they had encountered during their education and how they thought their school and other institutions of higher education may contribute to systemic racism. Something I always dreamed about was going to Penn from kindergarten. A lot of people in my school thought I was being crazy because we were at an underfunded public school in North Philly and kids from that school never went to the Ivy League. It was essentially unheard of. I remember being told by teachers, teachers calling my parents and saying things like, your son didn't write this story, or your son didn't do this work. You guys did it for him. We need you guys to come down and explain what's going on. Essentially because it was too good for someone, what they were saying, of my age to write. I think in my mind, they were tying both age and race together. And one of the main things I remember was a short story that I was writing, probably about like 15 pages long or something. I, I went overboard because I was happy and excited for it. And it was a passion, a sparkle in my eye because I realized I could create stories. I could write things that people would enjoy. And I put so much time into it. And then to hear someone tell me that it wasn't me because they didn't believe I could do that, that's racism. One of my first classes, I got there like a couple minutes late and I walk in this room and there's over 150 kids. To make matters worse, there weren't many black faces in the room. And that experience for me never really went away, especially in the physics department. I was one of maybe three black people in my graduating class. And even that was considered a lot. Me and my friends were having this discussion the other day about, oh, how many black professors did you have at Penn? And I had two. I had one for math and one for African-American history. <laughs> and that was it. In terms of me doing my initial selection of a university, I wanted to be represented, seeing people of color in the classroom, seeing, you know, people of color in the faculty and also having professors of color. I didn't expect it to be very close to non-existent. I know at Suffolk, there's under 10 people of color, including the faculty and professors. And then even in the classroom, I was often the only person of color. There was probably only two or three students in my entire four years that I was in the classroom with that also identified as being people of color. We have a black history minor and in my entire four years at Suffolk, there was only one student in that minor. When it comes to diversity, I definitely think there was an overrepresentation of international students and that's what they refer to as diverse. But realistically, we had a lot of international students where there were multiple in one class, but then you have the local people 
people of color and there's only one or two in the course. I've always been the only black person in all my classes. I crossed four years. I recently read an, an anonymous letter by a former lecturer in St Andrews. That person worked in St Andrews for 35 years and in those 35 years they said they only taught two black students. It seems that the university does spend more time recruiting from certain demographics. Yes, it might be diverse internationally in terms of different nationalities and countries, but in terms of race and ethnicity, it's, it has very little diversity. There are very few black students in St Andrews, very few other ethnic minority students in St Andrews, and you rarely see, you know, students in a hijab, for example. You know, if you do speak to the, to such students, you do hear their experiences and how being in such a low diversity area does affect their learning and affects their, um, their uni experience. I've only, in my whole time here, been taught by two black lecturers. I never had, outside of my family unit, those mentors. There's only so much you can imagine and there's only so much you can make up when you don't ever see it. And another way as well that such um, institution racism is upheld is through the curriculum. The things that are taught mainly focus on Western countries and on Europe and America. One of the classes we took, it was a class about the history of art. And it was insane to me that they only taught Western art. And if you wanted to learn about like African art, you took a specific class for it, which you had to have the interest to do that and you had to know that there was actually I only knew about the class because I knew the professor who was teaching the class the school is just pushing western art as what we should study as the primary thing we should study when she would mention like certain African things like Egyptian art and stuff like that it was very tribal and naive and primitive the idea of like oh because you're black people are from Africa so you're primitive and closer to animals versus whenever you talk about the western art it's you know advancements and perfection you know like when you learn about perspective for example that was from Italy like it's glorified but when you learn about what it looks like doodles that are African symbols it's not seen in the same light and in the same glory. I remember there was once a campaign against like some of the images you know white men who had been involved in the slave trade and and people were fighting and being like well the university shouldn't uphold this and we should take this down and I remember that was met with a lot of friction and I don't think they took the paintings down. Penn in a lot of ways isn't what it's cracked up to be. In West Philadelphia where a lot of predominantly black people and families with low income tend to live over the years, Penn's been buying up property and gentrifying at massive rates in order to put up housing for their own students. Penn as an institution won't pay taxes on certain things and not invest those funds into the community as much as it should. The university, it's bound to overlap with some pretty racist and ugly stuff that they naturally tried to hide. In the Penn Museum, one of the hidden gems is these collection of skulls by this guy named Morton. But he was also a eugenicist. He believed that skull shape was tied to race, which was tied to intelligence. And one of my best friends is part of the Penn Slavery Project that specifically looks into the university and certain employees in the past and benefactors' ties to slavery. It gained so much coverage in local papers that the project existed that the university can't ignore it anymore. A lot of institutions, especially ones of higher learning, that are in the hundreds of years old all have somewhat similar histories to varying degrees, but very few are willing to acknowledge that fact and apologize. The university hasn't really been very accountable. The initial email the university sent, which had a hint of understanding Black Lives Matter, was at the tail end of a COVID email. And like one of the last paragraphs was something super, super tone deaf. They said, 
at least you can breathe. And I just found it really super, super, super insensitive to send an email. I, it deserved its own email, but it completely just upheld, you know, St. Andrews, we're not the best, but like, at least, you know, we're privileged and people aren't facing terrible discrimination and this isn't happening, but... I just don't think it was good enough. I think they needed to be a clear-cut response. Like, we are an institution which very much is complicit in a lot of systemic racism and uh, racial biases and stereotypes. Like, my other black peers and friends, you know, we're happy that we got our degree and we're happy that, we, you know, we got out. But for, for the most part, we're happy that we survived because there's been many moments when a lot of us have been like, you know what, this is a lot. Maybe we should just transfer to universities which are more diverse and that can better serve our needs. For one of my fashion classes, our professor, she would always tell me about only African designers. Why was it only me? To make matters worse for me, we had this project where we were going to present on a well-known designer. Most of the designers assigned to people in the class, they were white designers. And I, the only black girl in the class, had the only black designer that was assigned. What about the other, like why can't they look into it? Why can't they be given something about an African artist? Why is it just me? Unsurprisingly, there were many issues that these graduates mentioned when discussing how higher education institutions often maintain and propel systemic racism. But did they have any ideas for reform? When a university or like an institution has their priorities, then that will come out. And in many cases, it's more about them not having it as a priority or seeing the value in certain things. That's why they underinvest. Like that's why they don't do as much as they should be doing about some of these things. Certain institutions want to uphold their image, their relationship with certain groups of people. By doing that, you essentially neglect some other areas that should be attended to. In terms of the Black Student Union on campus, we didn't have a lot of non-Black members, but I definitely think it's important to understand that all of these events are inclusive. And I definitely think there's important um, lessons, values, activities that anyone can learn from. So it was a really great time for those conversations to be had and you know, to become real allies, but I don't feel as though that was the case. But I think it would be beneficial if the university itself stood up and said, you know what, we do have a problem. Our school is not diverse, so you really should check out this event. A lot of the systemic racism happens at home and it's learned behavior. So I think it could definitely be beneficial for people to learn at their university a little bit of history, especially regarding Black events, Black history, certain figures. But I just don't think that we're at a point where that's a requirement. And I definitely think it should be because I definitely think that people of color have significantly different experiences, whether it's specifically due to representation on their university or just how they're treated. I definitely think that some of that could be negated with some initial conversation or just formalized education or lessons. It comes a lot about outreach and marketing. If their budget is primarily focused on certain areas, certain you know geographical regions, then they would ultimately end up neglecting a lot of other areas. So I think it's about essentially allocating money or like resources just to actually boost like the outreach beyond like the classic groups that they're usually market to. Diversity means different things depending on who you ask. But I definitely think that universities need to think about how they're defining diversity. If they were to, to change their recruitment practices and, and you know focus on other areas, this could improve things. It literally goes all the way back down to primary school. How do we instill ideas of kind of aspirations and expectations if young people aren't kind of encouraged 
at a young age to feel like they can do things then they eventually go to secondary school and high school and don't feel like they can get to these higher places and then eventually don't apply to certain universities or university at all. Higher education needs to make a bigger effort in creating more access, so creating more scholarships and funding and bursaries and loans, which can mean that more people who aren't necessarily coming from like a privilege in terms of like especially monetary to be able to access higher education. And then once they're there to be able to retain them. I think that a lot of colleges and universities function as a business opposed to higher education institution. The four years or however long you take to finish your degree are definitely important years. And I think schools need to make a conscious effort of making sure that each student is represented on campus besides themselves. The focus is really on the business aspect of things and making sure that schools focus on standardized testing, want the smartest of the smartest, they can kind of boost their rates. They're making the most amount of money they can instead of focusing specifically about the students. A lot of cases of discrimination, they're not adequately dealt with when they're reported, that's the thing. For the people who've actually like reported certain things, and it really doesn't give them the confidence to actually believe in the institution. Across various institutions in the UK, it's quite inevitable when you do some research in the history of those institutions to find that those institutions have been built off the backs of slavery. And a big thing is that sometimes they try to cover up the links to this. And I feel like having transparency and being aware of it and making statements to say that, yes, we have been complicit it in this way but this is how we are recognizing it and trying to at least make some amends and just do something about it really the way things are named when certain things are named in memory of slave owners at least change these names of these things you have to consider who made these systems and who are they for the ivy league is a fantastic example of a very long time in american history these systems were created by cisgendered white men for cisgendered white men, and in often cases built upon the backs of black people. Over the centuries, you have women being admitted and people of color being admitted, but the institution at its core has the same shadow on history and the world. And it's not to say that these systems haven't changed or won't try to help you out, but as long as the system is still there, the benefactors are going to remain the same. These systems, the only thing that is going to lead to that change in the system is complete overhaul, which is very much easier said than done. If you're not a white man, <laughs> This system was not designed for you. Penn does a pretty decent job of getting other students from Philadelphia into their school, but it's oftentimes not kids from the poorly funded high school a couple blocks away. That kind of thing is very important, looking at the scope of who is coming to your school, because the paradoxical thing is the easiest way to change these systems would to be to no longer show interest in them and go elsewhere. Some school a few years ago acknowledged the fact that yes, slaves and indigenous peoples to America helped build this school. And so going forward, if you trace your lineage back to these groups, you get a free ride to the school. And not every school in the country could do that, but that kind of apologizing and recognition for a more concrete solution going forward is something a lot of schools could be doing, but unfortunately aren't. 
When considering the experiences of these black students throughout their educational careers, what do they want non-black students to be aware of about the reality of being a black student at a predominantly white institution? It's challenging to acknowledge privilege at first because you might not necessarily feel or think that you have it. Yes, I'm not black, I'm white. That affords me certain privileges that black students don't get. That's a huge first step in trying to understand where black students are coming from in any institution. Fellow peers can take a few moments to really sit down and think about what hurdles they didn't have to jump through. If you take the typical story from a black student, from even a middle-class background, it's going to be a lot different than a white student from the same background. Black people have to work twice as hard to get half as far. My parents always told me, you can be whatever you want. You can do whatever you want because you're bright and you're brilliant and you're beautiful. Those are things that I was told at home. So going to university, I never questioned any of those things. But there are people out there that didn't have necessarily that same foundation. And so not having those things always going through your head while being at a university with people that don't look anything like you who are possibly doing better than you. It's a very rat race mentality of you just trying to get ahead and trying to do better and get a job or get an internship and be the best of the best. It's easier to do that when you're told those things, when you're told that you're bright and you're beautiful and you're brilliant and you, you have access to these resources and the world is your oyster. But there are people that have worked really, really hard, who are really bright and have made it to university, overcome all the obstacles in their path, regardless of any people trying to counteract their greatness. But when they get to university, they don't have necessarily that strong drive or motivation because they don't see anyone like them around. And then clicks form. You may not have as many friends and it's not because you're not trying, but it's because of people's implicit biases and the idea of like you don't belong here is something that black people or just minorities in America have had to struggle with possibly for their whole lives. The whole American dream was built for a very specific type of person. If you don't fit into that category, if you don't fit into the mold that America has designed for people who are deserving of its privilege, you can often feel like you aren't wanted where you are. When you go to uni, you expect to have a good time, you expect to be going out and just, yeah, being social, but it does affect that because you feel like going out, you would be the talking black person. You might be the first actual black friend that somebody has had. And the way in which they relate to you sometimes is different to how they relate to the people. Certain things you might not do or say, your accent might change a little bit, your humour will change the kind of jokes you make. And you are very conscious about the fact that you are the only black person. And so you kind of feel a burden of being like an ambassador for black people. You feel like wow I'm representing black people now because they don't know any other black person so you don't want to be a stereotype and that's quite bad because why can't you just be yourself but you worry that being yourself might reinforce certain stereotypes that you don't want to reinforce and it just make you feel like okay I'd rather avoid all that and not go out. I felt the same thing that many other minorities feel not just black people that you have to kind of be the representative informally for your entire race. It wasn't until college that I understood that like I am viewed as a black person. Like that's the first and foremost identification people would have with me. Another extra layer of it was 
what college was like for me because I am African and I identify as Ghanaian. I always made it a point with whatever projects I would have to do something that related to me being African or me being black. It was important for me to do that because I wanted to be able to tell my story, tell my point of view on like who I am as an African and who I am as a black person in America. But what ended up happening a lot is like I would be kind of boxed in to either or identity depending on the one I decided to do a project on. People would say things to me like, for someone who's from a different country, you're so well-spoken. Just because I sound like you, because I don't sound African doesn't mean I'm more well-spoken. My point was to just tell one singular person's experience being Ghanaian and also being Black. It wasn't to tell the story of all Ghanaians and all Black Americans, but whenever people would give me feedback, it would be like, it, it's so interesting to hear what the culture is like. Like, it would just be like they are generalizing my experience and it would bother me because I'm like, I'm not the voice of Africans. I'm not the voice of Black people. I'm just telling my unique story and I wish it would just be viewed that way. Specifically, I'm thinking of a moment during Black History Month around 2017. We were thinking about Jell Obama and I ended up being the voice for her and speaking up for her. It gets to a point where it's like, okay, yes, I'm a person of color. Yes, I love my voice and I'm very proud to have my voice, but my voice doesn't represent every person of color. You know, not every person of color has the same lived experiences. We don't all have the same perspective. So I think in terms of being that token student, I think that during my time at Suffolk, I was often that single or maybe there was another person of color in the classroom, but our voices were kind of the voice for all people of color, which I think is definitely not acceptable. Feeling of discomfort as a black student, walking into lecture halls and not being able to see anyone that looks like you, especially when like I was first starting as well, walking into very, very big spaces and just seeing like a of white faces and feeling like an, the odd one out I think having that happen repeatedly to you it definitely does something to your self-esteem and your understanding of why you were there and like makes you feel what I now know which is called imposter syndrome feeling like maybe you shouldn't be here and the fact that this classroom doesn't reflect anyone that looks like you makes you think maybe I shouldn't be studying this and is it an achievement that I'm here not every campus has a black student union and so I think it can definitely be difficult as a person of color to find your clique it shouldn't really be a manhunt to find people that look like you. Feeling like you constantly have to shrink yourself but also make yourself big at the same time. I think most students when they want to go to university they're not looking to always be the one that's different and other and always be the one that people have to ask you know where are you really from and why do you speak like this and like have all these questions all the time and like prove themselves. I don't think anyone wants to be under that level of scrutiny but I think that's what happens to a lot of non-white students and predominantly white spaces we're constantly having to prove or justify why we're there prove where we're from those little kind of tearings away at your identity and your sense of self in aggregate it's a really heavy burden for any one person to carry oftentimes well-intentioned white people make comments or act in ways that may be harmful or racist i asked these graduates if there were any particular microaggressions or common mistakes that their non-black peers made that they wanted others to be more mindful of. I've asked my friends from high school who were the other black students, I've asked friends in college, and they all have similar token stories where white friends would ask like, oh, can I touch your hair? Or can I say the N word around you if that's cool? And make certain jokes and like, you're gonna think that's funny, which means I can say it to other people. And that kind of thing isn't universal 
necessarily, but it's very widespread, especially in higher education, because many students come from not diverse backgrounds and never really get a chance to understand the plight of others and never get checked or corrected on anything. Hearing the you're one of the good ones or being like the token black friend. I know for a fact that there are many people out there that, that see me as that token black friend, like the one that you can like take home to your family or you can introduce to your friends or like concept of one of the good ones is very disrespectful to the people I identify with who have been targeted by a very intentional and corrupt system, but weren't able to have access to certain resources in order to bring them to where I am right now. Now, on behalf of my entire race, I take offense to them. I am very proud of my race. I draw strength from my race. I've seen people in my life that have tried to use that or corrupt the idea of blackness. The one I guess I got the most commonly was like, oh, you're so like well-spoken and well-educated, which sounds like a compliment on the surface, but the flip connotation is also because you're black, it's surprising you have such a strong vocabulary or good at oration. And that's something I've heard from middle school onward. I don't want to hear you tell me that you think I am well-spoken and I can articulate myself well because it's very insulting. Like, so what do you think my brother, you know, another person from Africa, you think because they have a thick accent than me they are not articulating themselves well they're using the same words as me you just can't hear it well there's a whole debate about using the term person of color because mm. it's almost as if it upholds the referent to like being like white is the canvas upon which everyone else is colored I still say person of colour, people of colour, but I understand actually like the politics of that. This person's international, just in mainstream, they're so used to hearing the word African-American. They thought you can call all black people African-American, but I'm not American. So the person asked me, so like, wait, what do I call you? And she's kind of whispered, but like, black. And I'm like, why are you whispering black? You can say black, you know, it's not an insult. If you think saying black is something bad, you're insinuating that being black is an insult. You think there's something wrong with being black. Why are you scared of saying that word? What else are you going to call me? Just say black. I'm not American. African-American does not apply in this instance. People feel like there's something dirty about calling somebody black. And I think that says a lot about people's mentalities, either consciously or subconsciously. Subconsciously, if you've, you've absorbed the message that black is something you don't want to be, something bad. It's, it's got all these negative stereotypes about it. So you think it's an insult when it's not. You don't act black. Usually when you hear that, they mean it as a compliment. You still are black. It's just that their perception of black stereotypes don't apply to you or other black people in general. It's like you sound white. If you talk a certain way or carry yourself a certain way, like you have lost your blackness. People of color have different hair textures, different hairstyles, which is part of the culture and just kind of a part of the race and something that's out of our control. And people wanted to touch my hair or comment on my hair because it was different from what their style was. I've had professors be like, oh, wow, your hairstyle is really different. But it's like if a white person in the classroom comes with their hair a little bit different, they don't get that same comment. I didn't often have my natural hair out. And when I did have my natural hair out, people would try and touch it. People would try, you know, ask me questions about it. Stop being just ask questions about my hair and like I said I tried to touch it but it's like I don't know you so why is your hand gravitating near my hair don't do that and again in a social setting when you're with friends and you just want to have a good time 
suddenly you are being interrogated and people are asking questions about these things that you don't really want to answer right now it makes me uncomfortable when i talk about things like my hair like and they're like yeah like i totally understand what you mean like no you don't you, my hair is nappy as hell you don't have nappy hair you don't know the time i have to put in to make it fit the definition of it's clean and it put together it's cute that you're trying to relate but there are other ways in which you can frame your validation of my experience that isn't i understand what you mean like oh girl i get that like no you don't a guy pulled my breath to get my attention which I found extremely disrespectful and I was very angry in terms of thinking that you can pet a black person we're not something to pet don't pet our head just certain comments about us knowing certain dance moves or and questions like oh so where are you really from are you really from here though your family could have been in this country for generations but you're still seen as less British than somebody else just because of your skin colour. The N-word, I know in hip-hop, different music, it's referred to a lot. And, it, and I think that one common mistake for white people is that when they sing a song or they repeat a lyric or they rap a lyric, they say it. That's probably caused some of the most conflict I've ever seen. White people should not say the N-word, no matter what circumstance. It will always be offensive. We had spring break and come back from holiday, just talking about, you know, what did you do with the holiday? Where did you go? And someone's like, oh yeah, and my family went to the Caribbean for holiday and, and my mum jokes that now she's so tan, she's almost as dark as the locals. Things like that where just comparing a tan to being black. A lot of the issues that I dealt with, they were not as scary and as life and death situations. Of course they were impactful to my being and to my identity, but I think because people didn't see that, it didn't seem like it was a, a obvious or physical issue for me as a black person, then oh, I didn't have any issues. Understand that the breath of the black experience doesn't just begin or end with police brutality. It's a lot more nuanced. It's a lot more widespread than that. Like once again, a privileged person in a really nice fancy store getting kicked out for looking too much. That was my experience. All of these experiences are just as valid, just as important. And I think when we understand how like the little nuanced experiences to the more bigger picture ones like police brutality against black people. If we understand how they are all so interconnected and how they all play a big role in how they affect our mindsets, I think we can make a lot of progress towards change. As the Black Lives Matter movement has grown significantly since George Floyd's murder, so has the sharing of educational resources, petitions, protests, and organizations to donate to. But what were the actions that these recent graduates wanted to see us take to become more effective allies and support the Black Lives Matter movement? I know this can be difficult for people out there that really want to advocate for the rights of others and, 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 and advocate for justice in general because they have been in touch with their humanity. And at the same time, like their words are kind of hollow or don't hold as much merit behind them because they aren't a person of color. And I want to challenge that idea because there is still a lot of things that you can do as not being a person of color. And I would say in order to do that, which in turn makes you a better you, you have to become a deep thinker because then you will unlock parts of your mind, parts of your heart that may not have been exercised enough. And in doing that, you will find yourself probably involuntarily developing a profound sense of empathy. Empathy. And once you have empathy, you connect with those around you that don't look or talk or act like you. But someone who can understand the mindsets and the experience and the cultures behind different people, appreciate those things and then tie those values into how they operate in their daily lives or how they interact with the rest of humanity. You have an appreciation for difference. And I think that's a very beautiful thing because you will begin to change.
chase perspective. There are always two sides to every story. So don't come with your strong ideas when you haven't gone through the work of seeing different perspectives, of understanding different walks of life, because then you leave your ignorance behind and you come as a deep thinker. Lead with that, hear someone out, and then don't try and do a rebuttal that instinctively protects your possibly toxic mindset. Allow your beliefs to be targeted. Allow things that you believe to be fact or things you've been told, allow those to be questioned and interrogated because you will be a better person for it. That is what you can do right now. For everyone to understand their role in the system and their role in benefiting from a system such as the one that we live in, there is a just between intent and impact and you have to be mindful and humble yourself when someone tells you that the impact of your words or your actions had a harmful impact and being open to being like, hey, okay, I won't do it again or tell me how I cannot do that again. I think it's very important to be an ally. The first step is to have those conversations, say, you know what, how are you doing? And not just, how's your day? Oh, the weather's great. Beyond those sorts of conversations, how are you on campus? What are your thoughts? What would you like to see change on campus? Some white people don't have black friends. I mean, I can't really explain the reason or the rationale behind that. Understand that all your friends don't have to look like you. It's okay to have a friend of color check your friend group make sure you have a diverse pool of friends as humans we tend to drift towards people that look like us and I feel so in the classroom where there's a minority and that person may just be one person of color in the classroom I think it's very important to recognize that and recognize that they're alone once we move towards comforting that person instead of treating them as an outsider I think that's where we'll start to see change I think every white person should read White Like Me by Tim Weiss. As a white man, he'll never really understand the plight that others go through and that his voice shouldn't be the predominant one in black discussions. But he still had a voice and he still chose to use it in a good way. While your voice is important, it's still important to give black people the avenue to share how they feel about something something. Regardless of how good an ally you are, want to become, it will just be different for you than the people you're trying to help. If you see a black person going through something, in any other ethnic minority going through something, and you can see that this is wrong, help them come to their defense as well, say something. Because like when you're in a situation and something happens and nobody says anything to back you up, you feel like they all agree too. That's why they're silent and letting things happen. And you suddenly feel so alone, and it's like nobody's gonna say anything to help me. Do you all not care? It's not something that you can just walk away from. It's something that is constant throughout their lives so say something think about what that person's going through and how much more scared and comfortable they are having those uncomfortable moments and being okay with having uncomfortable moments i think it's very important for white allies to interrupt the conversation if you hear someone saying something that isn't appropriate address that address it in the moment it often turns into a situation where oh wow i heard what was said to you earlier today that was really wrong that makes the person who experienced that feel even worse because you sat there and saw something happen and that you knew was wrong you didn't say anything about it if someone touches my hair I, I think it's extremely beneficial for another white person to say you know what you really shouldn't touch your hair you wouldn't touch mine so please don't touch hers rather than me repeating the same thing over and over and over again because like we reach a point of exhaustion where it's like you know what i'm having a long day i have other stuff going on go ahead and touch it i think maybe it's just like calling out racism where you are and when you know wherever you are even when it comes to your parents say something that's you know very offensive like this is something you should actually call them out on like actually discuss with them just 
just take initiative. You go out there and just learn about racism. Just learn about the history of race. Just learn about different moments in history. Because it'll go along with when you do face someone who's being a bigot, that you know yourself that you know what they said is racist because of this. Educate yourself, but that doesn't mean turn into the nearest BAME person you know and say, can you please help me? I don't know, teach me. The burden should not be on us to educate you. There, there are things out there. The resources are there for you to read. If you really do want to be an ally, take that on yourself and educate yourself. Holding companies accountable. How can we get more people to hold them accountable so that they understand that like, it's not just black people that are complaining about this. Like this is a national crisis and you need to be part of the change. When companies feel like people are watching them and holding them accountable, they will change. People make decisions, not just on like if they like the product, but if they feel like the company has a deeper purpose than just giving me a product, you better listen to your customers. And your customers are both black people, or, you know, white people, any person of color, any identification. And if you're not going to address their needs, then you're not going to be making money. So if everyone can contribute to that push against corporate America, I think it can do a lot more than we think. America is a capitalist society. And I think corporations, they be working with the government too. Like it's not just the government that needs to be held accountable. It's not just government institutions that need to be changed. It's how they're also interact with corporate America and how that's bringing about policies that are ending up hurting marginalized groups in society. Hold everybody accountable. It's a systems thing. It's every part of the American system down to voting needs to be questioned right now. Racism is also a pandemic. We just aren't fighting it as hard as we should. It's going to be a lot different than fighting COVID-19. We can't just do certain things for a few weeks, get a cure, and then have life go back to some new normal in this case it's going to take generations of people educating themselves and each other the tearing down of very racist and sexist and xenophobic and homophobic symbols around the world and in our culture it's also going to take the push for change to the polls. If you want the system to not only represent you by looking more like you, then you have to vote. And it starts when you're 18. I just hope that it carries on past 2020 and going forward, that this dialogue about race and gender, we keep educating ourselves on and pushing for that change. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Commencement. I am especially appreciative of Nana, Clara, Nate, Emma, Samuel, Jakira, and The Educator for taking the time to openly share with me their experiences and reflections. And to join Ajay, a student at the Savannah College of Art and Design, for her original music, which is featured on this episode. Other original music on this episode includes works by recent graduates George Kakas, James Fernando, and Scott Delta. Every time you share this episode on any platform up to 1,000 shares, I will donate $1 to the United Negro College Fund, an American organization that funds scholarships for black students to become college graduates, and the Black Curriculum, a British social enterprise which implements and teaches black history curriculums to British youth all over the UK. Please send a screenshot of this share to commencement.the.podcast at gmail.com for it to be considered as a donation. Would you like to join the conversation about higher education and graduate life? Or have your original music 
featured on this podcast? Send an email or voice memo to commencement.the.podcast at gmail.com, subscribe to Commencement on Spotify, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and follow commencement.the.podcast on Instagram for more updates. You